season three of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Sunil, you're looking kind of yoked today in your Hanley shirt. I'm wondering, what kind of physical labor do you do? You, you ever built a house before? No. I know you're kind of looking at me in the corner of your eye like, where are you going with this? But here's what I've been thinking about all day. Um, I've been thinking about what the hardest jobs in the world are. And there's this huge spectrum, right? Like at one end of the spectrum, maybe the hardest job in the world is like lifting rocks. And to the other end of the spectrum, maybe it's something completely different. You ever think about what the hardest jobs in the world might be? See, I think one of the hardest jobs in the world has to be being the product manager on Facebook newsfeed or running Instagram. Right. And I think that's the spectrum. It is physical labor that impacts you right here and right now, or it's what I do impacts hundreds of millions and billions of people all over the world. Not only that, but I mean, it has uh, ramifications on elections, on people's psychology, just everything. And so I don't think we need to give much background on what Instagram is. Instagram is the most popular social network in the world, maybe right along with or behind Facebook, and is actually a part of the Facebook family. And today we've got a pretty cool guest. Yeah, we have uh, Adam Masseri, the CEO of Instagram. And for background, as, as we know, the original founders of Instagram left around a year and a half ago, and Adam Masseri was tagged to run the company, which was a big, big job. A big job. And before that, he also had another really big job that was influential, not here in, just here in Silicon Valley, but all over the world. He ran the newsfeed. And, you know, between those two things, he is, without you knowing, probably one of the most influential people in your life. And we had the rare and lucky opportunity to talk to him today. Yeah, arguably one of the people with one of the hardest jobs in the world. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We are recording. Adam, Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being in this closet. Um, I wanted to say that before we even start, I want to paint a picture of what's going on in this room because there's actually four of us here, although three of us are mic'd up. This is the first time that we've ever had anybody as a guest who is technically and actually taller than Sunil. So I'm like a <laughs> foot and a half shorter than every single human being in this room, which is kind of tough for me. Yeah, I think I'm doing okay. It made for a good photo, though. It, it would. Unfortunately, um, I'm going to get some risers out. Hey, uh, are you a Bay Area native? Are you from San Francisco? No, I'm actually from New York. Like uh, New York, Manhattan, New York, New York, upstate New York? I was born in Manhattan in the East Village. I went to the Upper West Side shortly after that, and then I moved out to the suburbs when I was about seven. In, and as a young kid growing up uh, in New York, did you ever say, boy, that West Coast seems kind of awesome, and San Francisco in particular, there's a sparkle in that city. I want to be there. Never. Never. <laughs> well, not when I was not when I was a young boy. When I was maybe fifteen, my brother and my dad and I took a trip to California, and we went to L.A. and we drove up the coast basically, and ended up in San Francisco. So that was my first introduction to the city. What's uh, what's teenage you think about San Francisco, and your first visit? I remember being told it was going to be very foggy, but I had two days of just blue sky sunshine. And I remember thinking I was almost disappointed that I was, because my expectations were set so high about this fog situation. But there wasn't much beyond that. I think I started to think about San Francisco a bit more a couple years later as an 18 and a 19 year old starting a design firm. I kept hearing and either anecdotally or even from people directly in San Francisco about how much this was a city that was a good place to be as a designer. 
And so that was my my formative impression of San Francisco as like maybe a 17, 18-year-old was it's a city that appreciates design. I want to talk about the the design stuff a little bit since you brought it up. Pretty pretty interesting. So how would you describe the design aesthetic of San Francisco? And let me just provide my perhaps unpopular opinion on this. I feel like design in San Francisco is like a physical spaces is somewhat converging. Like you have this blue bottle aesthetic that's taken off that now every coffee shop you go to has these high vaulted ceilings, you know, exposed brick and this and that. What's your, what's your view of physical design in San Francisco? And this is the only time I'm going to ask you to get really close to the mic. Okay, I'm going to get super close. The San Francisco's design aesthetic, I think, is complicated and sometimes confused. The I came into it thinking more about San Francisco as a city that appreciated graphic design and uh, product design. I was, you know, doing that kind of work for. I had a small firm back then, but architecturally, I think it's kind of all over the place. You've got a ton of Edwardian and Victorian architecture, which is obviously, you know, the bay window canonical example. You know, the painted lady style, and then you have a. A lot of new development that's trying to pay homage to that, but is modern, and they sort of box it out, and I just think it looks confused. I so I kind of think, and then you certainly so the new blue bottle style cafe, you know, vaulted ceilings, high ceilings, double volume spaces is also popular. It's kind of all over the place. I I don't I love San Francisco. Don't get me wrong. I think I had a different. I think I was overly optimistic about how strong the design culture here is when I was 17 or 18 and decided to move here. You know, yeah, I, I, I think that it leaves something to be desired, but that's another podcast for another time. We should bring an architect so, on here. Why is everything taupe? Like all the houses are taupe. It's really not pretty that way. Yeah, I think also there's a lot of development, particularly on the west side of the city and the sunset and the Richmond really quickly. And I think the I think it was the late 70s, maybe early 80s. And so you have a lot of a lot of development in a short amount of time gets a little you know you end up with some repetitive i don't know it's just it's not my favorite thing about i love the city that's not my favorite thing about the city is how it looks so we're gonna we're gonna jump back and forth between a lot of san francisco topics but i want to fill you in adam on my week last week okay so last monday i'm sitting in my minivan you know waiting for the kids to to finish up with school and i'm looking at twitter and I'm just depressed because it looks like we might be going to war and everything is going going to hell. But then I turn over to Instagram and everything looks like it's totally okay. <laughs> Nobody's posting about politics. My feed looks like everything is just wonderful. And you go over to Facebook and it's somewhere in between. Um, TikTok is, is sort of its own animal, which we'll get to in a second. But yeah, as somebody who's been an important design architect of social networks over the past 10 years, Describe the different experiences people have on social networks and what's so unique about Instagram. To start, I think it's important to acknowledge that everyone's individual experiences are different on each of the different platforms because you can make them your own. My Twitter is a really dark place, not because Twitter is dark, but because I follow all our biggest critics and try to engage with them, which just makes it one of the heavier things that I do on a regular basis. But there are core aspects to how each of the platforms are designed that do affect the emotional charge. I do think Twitter is, on average, a bit more of a negative charge because it's really a product that's designed for debate. And that's actually important. So this isn't a knock on Twitter. I use Twitter a lot. I love Twitter. But it's a, a product and a service and a platform that's designed for debate is naturally going to 
have more argument. It's naturally going to have more news. It's naturally going to have more hard-hitting topics. And I think it's naturally going to have more of a negative charge. Instagram being focused on visual communication, being focused on um, photography and simplicity. I think having the follow model, I do actually think ended up having a quite positive charge. Neither is right or wrong. Neither is better than the other. They're just quite different. Facebook, I actually agree, is somewhere in the middle um, because you know it's a bi-directional friendship model. It, they do invest heavily in comments, so you do get more back and forth, but it's not quite the retweet sort of centric um, system that Twitter can be at times. And so I think you what you f end up finding is the emotional charge of the service is a byproduct of a lot of these basic early decisions that each platform makes, which they might not even be realizing at the time. Do you, do you think about um, like city and urban design in the same way that you think about social network design? Sometimes the thing, I think there's a, a number of different parallels. When you are doing urban planning or you're doing architecture at scale, I think you're often thinking about what you know rules you can put in place or what the basic systems might look like. So rules might not be like rules like written on a board. It might be like this is this is how circulation works. This is like where the hallway is, and this is where you have to this this there. You know, in a mall, for instance, you go up the stairs on one floor, and then you got to walk all the way to the other side and go up the stairs to the next floor. That's to that's designed to make you pass as many stores as possible. In designing a, a platform, you do make decisions about how people engage, like how does privacy work? How, can you post publicly or not? What's the default? These decisions are, you know, not the same, but similar in some ways to designing a city. So how, how can you move through the city? You know, Goff, you know, is gonna be, have timed lights. That means that more people are gonna drive on Goff. So you can decide what the lights are. You cannot make people drive on Goff. Um, and so that's similar, this sort of system design, you get to, um, build the basic constructs, but then people get to do with it what they want. That's very similar. And I think that is a, an interesting challenge as a designer. I was, I'm a designer by trade in that you have much less direct control over what happens, but I actually think that's really exciting. You know, you have a lot of important decisions to make on a daily basis as it relates to the architecture of Instagram. Of course, you uh, were experimenting with uh, the hiding likes and things of that nature. What are some of the, you know, if you had to think about the three most important decisions you have to make in 2020 for the platform, uh, how would you how would you describe those decisions? Like what what you know, as consumers of the platform, um, curious. The three most important decisions, not the three most important areas or products. The, I'm just thinking. I think one of the biggest ones is going to be: Do we make like counts private or not? And that's going to be a decision that's going to hopefully. Um, it's going to come to head relatively soon, I believe. I've been working on that one a lot. Uh, that one a lot of people know about. I don't know if this is a specific decision, but another major thing this year is just the elections here in the U.S. I think that doing everything we can to address any bad actors trying to leverage our platform to compromise the integrity of the election, I think is just paramount. If you don't get that right, if we don't get that right, then I think this is going to be a world of trouble for everybody. Um, but that's not a specific decision per se. Um, we have, I mean, there's a lot going on. It's a crazy time. It's hard to like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a, it's a pretty open-ended question. So I'll just, since you brought the, the election thing, I'm just curious your thoughts on, um, you know, cause there's been just going down that thread with all the stuff around political ads that have been, that's been in the news. What are your thoughts on what's actually more potentially harmful? Is it organic stuff? Is it promoted stuff? You know, just any take that you can provide on that. 
Yeah. So in 2016, there were you know, primarily in Russia, but also so there's there's a bunch of different bad actors that try to um, manipulate different issues in people. There was ideologically motivated actors like Russia and the IRA, and then there are financially motivated actors that are mostly spammers and they're just trying to do click arbitrage, get you to click on these sensational links and you go to a web page and it's basically 100% ads. Those get conflated a lot, um, but they are they were they're both. We're not as on top of both of those issues as we should be. But you asked what, sorry, I actually forgot the. Organic versus organic promoted. Versus, yeah, so the ads gets a lot of attention because money is involved. And obviously, um, I do think the primary concern people have and often misconception is that we have an incentive for this to happen on our platform because it's good for our business. Either we're getting paid or it's driving engagement and then we have run ads against that engagement. These types of financially or ideologically motivated actors are very bad for business. They erode trust in our platform. They, and we're a platform that's based on, I mean, advertising is based on trust fundamentally. So just want to clarify, it's like not good. Um, but I actually I worry more about the organic because the organic can reach much more scale. Generally, we have more ability to identify issues within the sponsored part of the ecosystem because it's smaller, and because we, because we're taking money, we have like a whole series of extra rules and standards that we make sure all ads adhere to, whereas we are more open with just speech more broadly. So as a result, that creates more risk on the organic side because there's way more of it, and there's less sort of ability to police it. And so the challenges uh, that you have to overcome are just quite different in shape and often more complicated. Again, the way you need to think about anything in this space of integrity and safety is what we call defensive design. Every part of the system needs to assume everything else fails and still do all it can to address the issue. So I worry about both. Um, but broadly speaking, I think ads gets more attention, but organic is um, actually a bigger threat vector. I want to go back in time to that trip that you had over two days in San Francisco where it tricked you and you thought it was going to be sunny. I did. So <laughs> then you went back to New York with your family. And what, like, what's your story? How did you get to San Francisco? So I went to NYU, so I stayed in New York for college, and it became clear to me at the time that if I didn't leave, I probably would never leave. Now, I think I was a little naive, um, but most of my friends were in their 20s and 30s, and they had, they had never left New York, and they never planned to leave New York. Um, being in my 30s now and having friends older than me, it's clear that people with families start to leave New York, but that was not on my radar at all at 22, whatever it was. And I... Had a, I got kicked out of my apartment in Clinton Hill. I Because you did something? No, just a little miscommunication between me and my roommate at the time about <laughs> my tenure. I feel like we could dig into that more, <laughs> but I won't. Um, I had a terrible, I was in a terrible, uh, terribly unhealthy relationship. It's getting personal, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, <laughs> these things turn into therapy sessions pretty quickly. Something about the microphone in the room. Yeah. Uh, anyway, for, for, for a few reasons, I'd realize, I realized I could leave. And if I didn't leave over the course of a couple months or a year, things would sort of stabilize. And so I, in my mind, I was like, if I, if I leave now, I'll have another experience and I'll come back to New York. And if I don't, I'll never leave. And so I just decided to leave. And I actually hadn't even been here since I was 15. I think I was 18 or 19 at the time, maybe maybe 18, and I just decided to leave. And I took me about five, six months to, I mean, I had a design firm at the time, so I opened up an office out here, or, you know, found an apartment, did the whole thing. I, but I knew zero people, and I just was a total gut decision, and 
worked out great in the in retrospect, but was really lucky for a lot of reasons. Did you come to San Francisco proper? Did you move to Silicon Valley? Like where do you where do you land? San Francisco proper. I mean, being from New York City, I for me like San Francisco is is in some ways like a big town, and I just couldn't and still can't quite bring myself to go to the to the suburbs. Not no knock. Like some people love that. I have kids now. It probably makes more sense, but I need. A pedestrian lifestyle. I need to be able to like walk and buy a coffee, and I, I kind of crave that density. Do you think San Francisco has gotten better or worse since you moved here? Oh man, I, I mean, I worry about, I worry about us losing our character. I mean, there's obviously a lot of gentrification. There's a huge housing crisis. Those things are at odds with each other. The, but also my like my interests have changed so much i came here i was 22 23 you know and single and now i'm th- i'll be 37 i think next week next week and i've got two kids and like what na- like i'm like i used to like what neighborhood i live in now would, and would have lived in 10 or 15 years ago is totally different so it's, it's hard to say because so much has changed i do worry about i do worry about the city i worry about uh, I worry about us losing our character. I also worry about the skyrocketing, skyrocketing costs of living here. I worry about our inability to uh, manage through the transportation challenges, the housing challenges, et cetera, based on how the government is structured. Um, so, but uh, I don't know, I'm conflicted. Did you vote for our current mayor, the current San Francisco mayor? I did, I did vote for London yeah. Reed. And, and do you feel like the policies that she and her team are enacting are working positively for the city? I can't really. I mean, it's too early. I, I think the, the, the things, the, the decisions you make, I can't even imagine as a mayor, but I, they, they seem to take a while to come to fruition. And so I want to, it's also just a hard city to be a mayor. I think cities like New York and Chicago, where there's a lot more power concentrated in the mayorship, I think make it more easy to evaluate a mayor, but also empower a mayor more in a way that I actually think is probably f- effective. Here, Mayor Breed has a, a lot of things that she can and cannot do, but there's, I mean, the, the Board of Supervisors, all the committees, there's like, it's just a completely different animal. And as someone who manages a private organization, I, I can't even begin to appreciate how challenging it is. I have some friends who, who work in local politics, so I try to, I try to appreciate through them. But I just can't imagine doing it myself. It just it just seems brutal to try to get anything done. I mean, speaking, I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. And this is a common refrain with our guests is that uh, it, it just doesn't seem like this this government can move fast enough to address some of the challenges. But but then I think about I'm going to get to this point in a roundabout way. My my eating ch- habits are atrocious. And so I always make this argument with I'm, my friends. Now I'm curious where we're going. <laughs> I uh, I eat fast food once a week. And I argue to my friends often that being the chef for McDonald's is way harder than being the chef at some high-end restaurant because you have to cater to the taste of the entire world. And in a way, you know, I look at someone like you, um, I mean, couldn't you make the argument that being, you know, the the CEO of Instagram or the head of the Facebook newsfeed is like, those are two of the 10 most important jobs in the world because you decide what everybody sees. Um, what What's your what's your reaction to that? It's not where I thought you were going when you started with the McDonald's, uh, but it's but, actually Taco Bell that yeah. I eat. <laughs> uh, I, I try to remind myself of the gravity of the role and the responsibility that comes with the role on a regular basis. I 
don't I haven't thought about like how it stacks up in terms of how important it is relative to other roles. I'm I also try to appreciate it. Um, it can be I'm not looking for sympathy here, but it can definitely be overwhelming. Like you get caught up in the fire of the week or whatever's going on. Um, and it's important to take some space and try and appreciate it. So I try to do that at times. What we do is, you know, we try and connect people at Instagram specifically with the people and the things that they love. We have, we try not to decide what you see. Like we try to build a system where you can decide to connect to the people that you care about and you're interested in. Um, but that is still, like we talked about before, that's a different type of design. It's more indirect. It's like designing a, a city or designing a building. Um, but there's still a ton of responsibility that comes along with designing a city or a building or in our case, a platform. And so I try to remind myself of that on a regular basis, especially when things are tough. Um, Karina, our head of policy, sometimes reminds me when I'm like, when I'm frustrated, she's like, look, you're lucky to be even in this job. And so, you know, make sure you keep that top of mind. And so I try to do that. And I think that helps. I'm curious that, you know, just vision, et cetera, you know, there's an eight to 10 year old somewhere who five years from now, maybe an, in, what's the age limit on what? How 13. 13. Okay. So there's an eight year old who's going to be an Instagram user five years from now. Describe to that now eight year old what Instagram will be in five years. If you had to just concisely describe it, what will it be five years from now? Five years is a tough one because I think if you, when you go further out, it's more clear that things are going to change more significantly. And when you're closer it's not it's not clear like how dominant phones are going to be as a form factor for instance like probably they're still very dominant but they're obviously everyone's playing around and investing in the next platforms i think that a few core things will continue to be true our if we do our jobs well instagram will be a great place to stay close to the people that you care about most that's the thing that people come to instagram for is to connect with their close friends and it's also a great place to be inspired by all the amazing things in the world. Hopefully, through the lens of people behind all of those different things or crafts. Like we, we are not the best place to watch sports at all, but we are a pretty great place to see what it's like to be an athlete, athlete or get a window into an athlete's life. We're not the best place to listen to music, but to see what it's like to be a musician, we're pretty strong. So my hope is that we will continue to do that by investing in different areas and building products and tools for people in those specific verticals how um maybe we use the food metaphor the restaurant metaphor that how do you think about experimentation so if, if i'm responsible for taco bell and sunil is coming to taco bell every week i may be out looking around and this is an old example for something that's cool and interesting like doritos and different doritos flavor and i'm going to experiment with some something that's cool that has nothing to do but maybe sort of something to do with the business that i'm a part of and i test it and it works and then it goes crazy so, uh, like, I happen to love Instagram, and my daughter loves Instagram. I have a 14-year-old daughter who's super excited that you were coming in today, by the way. Great. Because she, she met a community of hobby horses, which I didn't know was a thing, in Finland. And she's become friends with them, and she's become a competitive hobby horser, and they invite her to Finland to compete in things, which I didn't even know it existed. But she found that entire community on Instagram. And now our daughter is spending a lot of time not just on Instagram but on TikTok. And the kinds of interactions, the communities that she is uh, involved in are very different. But I wonder how you think about something like TikTok. This is, right, Taco Bell to TikTok. Um, how do you think about TikTok and maybe the metaphor for their newsfeed, how they use the AI to tune for each individual person, and, and what that might look like for an experiment for Instagram? So broadly, how do you think about experimentation? A few different things. One is I love stories like that about your daughter, which is you find these niche communities because TikTok, Instagram, the Internet in general – the whole promise is that of everyone 
gaining the power to share their stories is that you should be able to connect with more niche interests. You, might, you should be able to learn about things that you love that you didn't even know existed yet. We all listen, you know, the top 40 in radio is like a thing because there's only so many radio waves, right? And now, you know, with Spotify and Apple Music and the rest of it, we should be able to learn that, oh, apparently we love Afrotech and I didn't even know that was a thing yet. And like that really, sh that, that richness and that momentum of niche interests across news, film, music, TV, etc. Like that should happen and it is happening, but not quite as fast as you would have thought. So. And we try to facilitate that on Instagram, whether it's horse. What was the horse? What? Hobby horsing. Like hobby a, horse. Like, hobby horse. You know, like a stick with yeah. a horse head on it. Yeah, yeah. It's a thing. Yeah, like that's wild. I have a friend who's really into Stone Island jackets, which is like some like British thing from. It's like I don't understand it, but it's it's like he's got this whole little. You should see the reactions in the room. Yeah, they're all like, <laughs> "What the hell are you talking about?" Um, now TikTok is super interesting TikTok, i'm not sure is about niche interests in the same way but TikTok is really good at a number of different things they're good at being a place to reliably be to be reliably entertained um but, you know but not all it's it's music led but it's not always music obviously they're great as a way to make the mundane interesting so from the pr from the producer side you know you can you don't need to have a like production studio or a staff to make an amazing TikTok video. You just need a great idea in an afternoon and probably a friend or two to do it with. I do think it's actually social in a way that people don't realize because people make these things, especially you talk to young people, they, t they make them together all afternoon, even if they're not booked in the video. And so it's being hired for these jobs um, about being entertained and uh, especially passing teenagers have a ton of free time compared to the rest of us. Um, and so I think it's creating value for them, and it's meaningful. Just them. wait until your kids become teenagers. They yeah, will tell you they have no spare time. Of course they, yeah. But my kid tells me his body tells him he needs two cars. Like he's <laughs> like, he learned that from being jet lagged once. He said my body's telling me I'm awake, and I was like, that's actually relatively apt. And then two days later, he's like, my body's telling me I need two cars. And I was like, that's not how bodies work. Speaking of TikTok, exciting, exciting companies, startups. So let's just say you're giving advice to, I don't know, over Thanksgiving break, Thanksgiving just passed, a 21-year-old uh, a on where to work, three startups that you're excited about right now, like that Ooh. you would bet your career on. And oh, I bet my career on is a big one. Outside of Facebook, outside of Facebook. Well, I mean, I don't think we count as a startup, do we? Uh, yeah, no, it depends on who you talk to, but no. Yeah, I don't think we count. <laughs> so. I mean, I think it depends. I think the most important thing, the most important advice to a 21-year-old is to be, to the degree you can, thoughtful about what you want out of your, let's say, next year or two. I probably won't ask a 21-year-old to think too much further in, a, in the future than that. And then to evaluate your different options through that lens. Maybe you care most about what you learn. Maybe you care most about the impact you have in the world. Maybe you care most about your career and your financial compensation. Maybe you care most about who you work with. I think that these are all reasonable things. There's no judgment here, but being intentional and taking time to try to answer that question, which by the way is hard, and then evaluating your options through that lens, I think is critical. Now, and depending on what your answer, what your answers are, you might go work at some place really big, or you might go work at place someone someplace really small. If you want to learn, I think a great thing to do is to go to a really small place because you'll do everything, but you're going to learn a lot of things, but not in a deep way. If you care more about being a specialist, then go to a big place and learn how to do something specific. But you asked what startups, I mean, I don't know what I would bet my career on. Um, I think that, I think Lambda is really interesting. Do you uh, all know this? Yep, yeah, we uh, we are having Austin as a guest at some point. 
Yeah, uh, they're pretty interesting because so for those of you who don't know them, they are sort of higher education. I believe it's primarily or entirely online, um, focused on computer science and programming. And it's the tuition is not traditional tuition. You essentially they help place you in a job. You pay no tuition, I think, until you get a job, and then it's a percentage of your income with a cap, if yeah. I remember correctly. And a sliding scale. And a sliding scale. And so I love that because it aligns incentives. There, it's there, it's an their incentive is not just to like get you a degree and charge you forty thousand dollars a year. It's to get you a job, and the better paying your job is, the more they make. So, I love when the, again we talked about system design. A big thing when you're designing a, a city or a building or a platform is what are the incentive structures that you're creating, directly or indirectly, and then most people will operate relatively rationally within their incentive structures. That's I think an important lesson to internalize and. Here, I really like it, the idea of a school that is invested in your career. Now, there's probably downsides, too, um, and so there's a lot of hype around them right now. But Yeah, yeah, there's hype and there's Twitter warfare. I, uh, there's this huge thing, quick take on the whole Austin DHH argument or this this whole, what's your what's your take? I'm not going to wait. I, I don't <laughs> want to weigh into one of the hot ones. Are you Switzerland? Is that yeah. what's going on yeah, here? Yeah, I mean, this is not, you know, I'm already venturing out of my comfort zone here a little bit talking about education, so... All right. Well, so I'll, I'll, I have one question, then Yasha will wrap up with the last question. Thanks for being generous with your time today. I know we're a little bit over. I just had one question around memes. Like, you know, this is something I think a lot about. What what do memes do to kind of discourse in general? Does it, do they oversimplify things? Like, what's just the overall, as the, you know, as somebody who's, who's run product at these two places, like, what, what just what's your overall take on memes? I think memes are polarizing not in that they drive people further apart but in that some people really love memes and some people really don't like memes so i don't know pick your food analogy brussels sprouts like so you have to like understand that so no matter what i say half the people who hear this will probably be interested and half of them won't but i do think that they are polarizing that's important to understand we think about that on the platform side because we should connect people with memes who are interested in memes and not connect those who are not interested in with memes with memes and how do we do that well again personalization is a core value of ours I think memes are great. I think they are an amazing art form, and I think they are an art form that tries to comment on whatever is culturally relevant. And in a world where we're all being inundated with way more information than we can ever process, and that is, quite frankly, just nutty as of late, I think memes provide often a poignant and funny and sometimes really insightful uh, reflection on that insanity and I think that's kind of cool now I don't I'm not good at making memes uh, that's not at all in my my wheelhouse I don't think they're for everyone but I, I kind of like what they're doing so we we wrap up every episode by asking all of our guests one question and that question is who are the people on the networks that you spend your time that you'd recommend as a follow so I'll give you an example like on if you're interested in hobby horsing you can go follow KHT underscore horse rider and then you can figure i know there are people here in the room right now who are like i'm gonna go do that right now um so you can go do that but if you spend your time at instagram being responsible for instagram who do you follow who do you think other people should follow and maybe one other network like a twitter yeah so on instagram i like trying to find smaller creators i um often ones from outside of the u.s so there's one i i found i've been talking to recently who i think is pretty cool um, his name is Luciano 
I think I pulled it up here. Luciano Cina. So his handle is Lucico. So L-U-C-C-I-C-O. He's Italian and he's an, he's an illustrator. And so let me see if I can get it. Um, you can't see this because it's the podcast, but he does all these really clever illustrations. So he takes photographs and then he draws on top of them. It's kind of very abstract Sunday inspired, um, but he's even made um, Instagram filters. Uh, and so you can actually like do some interactive ones yourself. I think that's pretty wild. There's also, there's obviously the big ones that are always like, you know, strong. Um, I like the, the, for me, the ones that are the more authentic, the better. Um, they going to go like kale salad. No, 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 no. Kale salad is great. I'm mean, actually, I love kale. My wife would be laughing hysterically right now because she knows it's one of my five favorite foods, which is weird. Um, but not on Instagram, really. What, what was I thinking of the other day? Um, oh, man. I don't know. I'm trying to remember the name of the actress. But look, you know, Bobby Cannavale posts pictures of his kids, and it just, I just as a dad, it cracks me up. I think, um, you know, the big ones, like The Rock is huge. It's like 170 million followers, but I think he uses it really, really, really well. But I like finding the little ones. I like finding the small creators in small markets that just do something that you never even thought of, and they do it really well. So for me, it's always, you know, um, Daily Overview is a photograph from the sky looking straight down that I think is pretty cool. A similar one is Jefferson Grid. So um, when Jefferson... Uh, was president he like I think they divided a bunch of land in the middle of the country into these one by one mile squares and so all this it's all this aerial photography of the grid and how different each square is because there's a different owner it's a kind of a beautiful pattern aerial photography mix I don't know I just whatever like that thing is of the month I try to find uh, whenever I can Okay, I'm going to break protocol a little bit and just one mini question that if you can answer it be I'm, I'm just curious what's the most often two feature requests that you get from users at this point. Can you can you share that? So if you look at my DMs, they're not feature requests. It's mostly give me a blue check mark. My favorite version of it, it's usually not this, it's usually more angry, but is um, it's my birthday. It would be a great present, which I think is clever. Um, there are some people who say that they've been hacked and they want to get back in. It's hard to tell which of them have actually been hacked and which of them are trying to get into someone else's account. Um, what do we get? Music sticker. So there's a bunch of countries in which the music sticker exists, but a bunch of other countries where it does not yet because of we don't have the rights. So I get that. That's probably the biggest feature request. Um, I don't know. I get a lot. You should look at my DMs. It's pretty wild. Well, you can just send your DMs over to us whenever you want. <laughs> okay. Adam, this has been fantastic. Thank you for spending the afternoon with us. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. you like cities and systems and social networks and systems. I don't think I would have ever put those together, like how you have to be conscientious about the design of the way that people move through a city in the same way that you have to think about using Instagram. It was a kind of fascinating take. Yeah, there was there was a lot in there that um, I, I hadn't expected to tie together, but you know, Adam's a really smart guy, and uh, it's good that he is extremely thoughtful about such things. Yeah, I think um, learning from and hearing from design leaders that happen to be responsible for businesses brings out a very dis different aspect of the way that companies work. And I think in this case, Adam really highlighted why maybe we should all be hopeful that we've got somebody who's a design thinker responsible for one of the most important social networks in the world. Yeah, and it and it makes you think. I mean, this is a very, very valuable skill is intersecting both, not just the technical stuff, but thinking about how people interact with, with products and the ramifications they have on societies at, at large. Maybe a less heady uh, learning and takeaway, and this is kind of collectively across all the interviews that we've had over the course of the last couple of years, San Francisco is like the city that catches people that had bad relationships. 
something like that, like you're like you and me. I think everybody, right? Like it, it seems like every single person that we've talked to has ended up here because of something that happened with their relationship. I was trying to make a joke, but but it but it failed. So. I took it super serious, though. But we'll uh, but we'll end on that note. Uh, as always, if you like the podcast, uh, please follow uh, Yasha or myself. I'm at Subes01, S-U-B-E-S-01, or at Kakas, K-A-Y-K-A-S. Wherever you listen to this podcast, too, go back and rate us. Rate us five stars. Nothing less than five stars. Five stars for sure. And even leave a comment. Uh, Sunil and I read every single comment, especially Sunil. Yeah, you know, it. It, uh, our moods fluctuate with how the comments go for sure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode.